Welcome to the Officials Podcast, the show where we talk about umpiring and refereeing in sport. We bring you unique perspectives, interesting guests and topical conversations. Our aim is to help individuals, groups and teams across sport and industry share and collaborate on ideas and insights. We invite you to follow our journey. Get involved through Facebook, the Officials Podcast, Welcome to Umpire Referee, a show where we talk about umpiring and refereeing across all sports. I am your host, Chris Donlan, and today joining me in the umpire's room, in fact, Matt Stevick's kitchen, is Matt Stevick. G'day, Matt. Chris, it's been a while. So, uh, good to be back. Certainly has. Uh, so Chelsea isn't with us today. She couldn't make it, but we thought uh, we'd take this opportunity to to reach out and record. It's been some time. I mean, with Thursday night games and a lot of travel and lots of things going on, it's been really difficult to get together. I know you've been umpiring on a few of the Thursday night games. Uh, yeah, and obviously uh, so much sport going on over the last six or eight weeks uh, with the World Cup. Uh, we've got the Tour de France happening. We've seen Wimbledon. Obviously the last you know five or six weeks of footy as well, so plenty to chat about. All right, so let's jump into it. Um, World Cup, what do you think? Uh, look, I'm not a big soccer fan, but um, I always get drawn to the World Cup. It's a, it's a fascinating event that I think um, captures all sports lovers, regardless yeah. of uh, whether you follow the sport closely or not. But I just love to see uh, how these superstar athletes, Ronaldo and the likes, um, deal with the pressure and are able to perform at their best when it really counts. So... Um, I loved some of the games, um, some of the scoring, uh, and obviously refereeing didn't seem to be talked about too much across the three weeks or so that the event was on, so that was a positive. Yeah, the thing that surprised me or I found really really weird was the VAR and the assistant referees actually dressing up like the on-field umpires. Uh, yeah, I, didn't, I saw a couple of times the VAR or the on-field ref go to the screen so where were they located? Where was the off-field? I think they're in a central location. I could be wrong, but I think they're centrally located somewhere in Moscow or something like that. Um, but essentially, if the on-field referee was wearing green, then all the VAR assistants were also in the same green top. So they so, weren't actually at the ground. I don't believe so. Okay. So it was corrected. Yeah. And so, I mean, I saw one incident that involved Neymar. Um, it was called a penalty on-field. Uh, the referee had a moment to think about it. He went then over off the ground to have a uh, or to view the incident in the little in the little box. Um, was he alerted? Did play stop or did he? Yeah, play continued for a moment, and so then he, he was, was alerted. Al- yeah. He was alerted. The game stopped. Uh, I can't remember who they were playing, but the opposition to the Brazilians were up in arms, and what we often see in soccer, which is a bit of an ugly site is you know players scrambling towards the referee demanding you know a decision be overturned not that Mm. that normally ever is but the referee went over viewed the incident and then deemed that uh the penalty that he called wasn't in fact a penalty Mm. uh the thing that surprised me was the reaction of the brazilians they they did not remonstrate at all and they just got on with it which i found a little bit surprising just given sort of the behaviour that you see when these controversial calls are made. So, um, but I think everyone decided or or, um, agreed that it was probably the right call. Yeah, I did hear that the area where the referee would actually go over and review 
um, the footage. So no coach, uh, no players were allowed in that vicinity. So he was left to his own devices to communicate with the VAR officials. And then he'd come back on field and then signal his decision. So they actually thought about you know, the environment that they create, the space they create for the on-field official to be not distracted by, by players. But, I mean, having said that, I mean, I saw a number of examples where one team, the call wasn't or didn't go their way. They are up in arms. The other team, obviously, were very supportive of the referee. Then the shoe was on the other foot the very next five or ten minutes and they just flipped. So they're almost like split personality. So the thing that really struck me still around refereeing and soccer is the lack of support that the referees seemingly don't have from FIFA. So you still see players going up in the face, you know, quite aggressively, sometimes touching them. Uh, and I just, I don't understand how this, the people that run the game could actually look at this and go, that is a good look for the game. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And also just going back to the VAR and the referee having the time and the space to make a decision, I guess they and we don't, know the intricate details of it but I guess in a broader sense they've also timing's a factor too isn't it and it's, it's not dissimilar in the score review system that we have at AFL level where we don't want to wait two and three and four minutes for a decision to come yeah. uh, to come up on the board or in the uh, the World Cup case for the referee to go through the vision so Whilst they had clear space and, you know, uh, a little box to, to make some or a view on it, um, the time factor probably puts them under a fair bit of pressure too that they don't yeah. want the fans and the players, you know, uh, and momentum to, to really um, be shifted by taking. I saw a game where I think there was an infringement. Play went on for about a minute. By the time the referee went over to the, the review box, it was 90 seconds. And so that whole time was, was lost. The commentators did say that they'll be adding it on through stoppage time. So then they actually had the penalty as well. The penalty was successful. They only got two minutes extra time, stoppage time in the first half anyway. So I thought, oh, gee, that's a bit amateurish. Um, and they've just literally lost, you know, 90 seconds of play time. Yeah. And what's your view on, I mean, you watch a lot more soccer than I do. Um, what's your view on diving? I mean, is it is it something that, could be eradicated from the game is that is that an unrealistic expectation from me the viewer who doesn't know much about the sport do you think that is an area for the game of football internationally that that could be really Mm. uh, improved upon or is it just or does it just need to be accepted that that's part and parcel of of the game there was an incident I saw where a player got tapped on the back of the shoulder he got tapped bang down he went like he was shot and social media blew up. What was notable was how irate the players were because of the go- because of that player's actions. And you know, so anything- that was that was a, an absolutely obvious um, stage. Absolutely, as opposed to somewhere in the penalty box where you know, and using the Neymar example, where he got there was some contact. It was the most minor contact, and he exaggerated that. So mm. I guess it's probably pretty hard to clean that up but the example you're talking about that is something that uh, ought not to ever exist yeah. yeah and social media really took to that that particular player i can't remember it but or the player's name but i remember the the reaction from social media and it wasn't nice are the referees empowered enough to actually do something about simulation or staging um, and you quite often you'll see them the referee 
you know, use their hands to motion the player to get up. Um, they can give yellow cards. Mm. Um, and they can give retrospective yellows too, I believe, as well. So um, I think the game itself has to sort itself out and it's got to come from the players, much like in AFL football. Um, what can we do? If, if we see a player stage, the last thing I want to do is go up to that player and tell him not to stage. Yeah, because nowhere in the rule book does it say you can't stage for a free kick. Yeah. Um, and then you get into this situation where at what point do you then intervene when you do see something on the field? It just makes it incredibly difficult for the officials yeah, to work absolutely. out you know, what's genuine contact versus what's you know a player searching for a free kick. You look at you know guys dropping knees, shrugging shoulders, those sorts of things. Is that any different to actually staging for a free kick yeah. well, when not, you're searching really. for a free kick? Yeah. And just think how hard it makes our game. I saw a game on the weekend where I think it was GWS Richmond, one umpire called play on. Another umpire. Oh, excellent, excellent! You raised this. So, what was your call from the uh, the lounge chair of your home? Well, it's very easy from the lounge chair, and I hadn't. I don't. I don't know where the what the AFL's position on on this is, but I thought the umpire made the right call in calling play on. But that's not to say that the other umpire in the adjacent zone had a different view. My view was that the player actually dropped his knees and contributed to the high contact. Yeah. So now what we say is that you know that's not a high contact free kick. The really hard thing for us is, and I don't disagree with that, it's really hard when a player lowers his body a little bit and the player still gets coat-hanged mm. and taken high. Um, we know that if a player drops his knees and gets taken high, we're encouraged to call play on. Um, but I think, too, the fine line, it becomes challenging when sometimes the natural movement of players to evade a tackle is that they will, you know, drop their body position a yeah. little bit to try and weave around or what have you. And so I, I think... We don't want to get too cute, right? No, so from what you start you're to read is, too much. You start to read too much into it. Ultimately, the guy has got the ball. He deserves to be protected. And if what you're saying, a guy comes in or a player comes in with a real rigorous arm sling or something like that or, you know, a really forceful, crudish sort of act, regardless of what that player did to maybe contribute somewhat to that contact... Gee, you want to protect the guy that's got the ball. Yeah, I'd agree with that's that. That's my position. Yeah, and I looked at that and I, I was I was comfortable with what both the umpires' calls were on, on the night, just watching it. I was, initially, I thought, good play on call. And then, you know, in the moment you say, well, you know, he's had his rip, head ripped off. I probably would have done the same thing from maybe the position that mm. the umpire had from from an adjacent zone and, and paid the high. But it's a really difficult area for us. And we're trained to just react, right? I mean, how often do you just put the whistle to the mouth and blow it um, without sometimes really thinking through things? Sometimes it's just that 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 response, that immediate response that you have to seeing something. Um, and then it's only later that you realise, oh, gee, I wish I had maybe just held off a, a moment or yeah. allowed things to unfold. Just going back quickly to the World Cup. Yep. So what was your uh, takeout sort of or takeouts from the World Cup? There didn't seem to be a lot of or a massive amount of talk around the VAR and, and officials in certain calls. There was a bit of talk, which, which you would expect. But what were your sort of overall takeouts? I guess it depends on which lens or you know, how clouded your, your view of things are. Uh, I know that it was the first VAR penalty in a World Cup final. Wow. So I heard that. I know that the Aussies copped the first VAR in their game. Um, they seem to cop a fair bit of um, referee stick. Tough usually. love. Tough love. 
Um, but look, I, I just think that they just need to work out the mechanics around some of the timing of it. Um, I think from a look, it looked actually okay with the referee going over to the sideline, um, giving him the space to actually, you know, talk with the um, the VAR officials in the in the bunker, and then obviously the execution of it. I, I quite I found it quite humorous actually after the referee would return to the field with his decision and they'd literally just run to the spot you know it's like get out of my way I'm heading straight to this spot um but you know there's there's some theatrics as well that obviously go with it um but the amusing thing for me was the fact that they were all dressed up in the same color as the on-field officials in the uh, in the bunker I thought that was quite funny but I was also interested just uh finishing off just the way different referees treated the players and, and mm. with their body language and, you know, some were quite dismissive, some were, you know, really showed a fair bit of empathy towards players. Some some officials had a combination of it all. But um, I guess no different to us. Different situations require um, different ways to respond, mm. different body language, the way we communicate. So Don't forget um, as well, I mean, we've had David Levins talk about the cultural barriers. Sure. You've got languages cultures all these other things that are obviously different expectations, play, expectations that players probably the way they play the game yeah so there's lots of things so overall i think it was pretty good speaking of technology and sport um you know i'm a big cycling fan you are right, very big so talk us vi- through the tour de video France. oh yeah. well, well video is now being used by um the race officials to uh look at uh, incidents and penalties so is this the first year that this first is first year they've actually used, i mean they've used it to work out uh so last year peter sargon got thrown out when he had a headbutting incident with cavendish um and they used video to, to to make that um determination but now they can also use it to see if a player so if you ever see a player oh sorry player, a cyclist they grab a, a bidon a bottle out of their team car and it's quite a sticky bottle, so they'll hang on to it for some time and get a, a bit of a free ride. Um, they, they frown upon that, and they'll usually they can get penalised for that, usually a fine. In worst cases, they can get ducted uh, time. But Tom Dumoulin got, uh, I think he had a mechanical or something, and he actually re- rode behind his team car for, for quite a period of time. And the race officials used the video footage uh, to penalise Tom Dumoulin 20 seconds. But Does the, that get penalised? Obviously, at the end of the day. Yep. That's yeah. yeah. So he was penalised twenty seconds, but the time that he spent riding behind his motor car, being motor paced, I think it was you know it was, it was quite significant. He was penalised twenty seconds. Had he not ridden behind the car though, he probably would have lost more time anyway. So it was probably his advantage anyway to actually ride behind the car and then get penalised the and take the penalty, yeah. which I thought was quite interesting. And. With regards to that example, do the teams or the players get a right to appeal um, any violations that they They do, might? yeah, they can appeal. Um, some other interesting things that sort of happened over the last couple of days, so they've hit the Alps and um, they have cutoffs. So the, the court... What do the you group- mean? So for the viewer or for the yep. listeners who don't quite understand... Yep, so they basically, they basically, to honour the, the race, right, they don't want... You know, riders just rolling in, you know, whatever time in the evening, right? So they want to maintain a fairly high standard. They'll have cut-off times. So essentially what they do is they take the uh, the time of the first rider across the line, then they work out some averages, and they usually take, like, the, the average speed of the middle rider. But they also categorise each stage. And I think they have five categories, one, two, three, four, five. 
And depending on what category stage it is, it will depend on uh, what percentage of the time they need to be within the main rider. So there was a rider on a stage two nights ago that was three seconds outside the cutoff time. But the, the race uh, commissioners allowed that cyclist to go through. But uh, Cavendish, Mark Renshaw and Kittle uh, were eliminated because they were well outside the, the time frames. I remember watching a few years ago, I think the, the main peloton well outside the cutoff time. Now, they're not going to obviously, you know... <laughs> cut off, cut off a big or, portion or, of the know, group. You know, the, 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 basically, the peloton, they'll be left with like 12 riders. So there's discretion for them to actually let some riders through. They'll also let a rider through if, if he's had a mechanical, but he's demonstrating an intent to actually ride within the time. Right. But there's been something that's happened. Um, so there's been instances where they've actually allowed those pl- uh, those riders to to continue on. And as, as the technology, do you think... Uh, is that been a good thing for the sport to ensure that the teams and the riders are, are held accountable for their actions? I mean, if you just think about like the technology in cycling now, so Dimension Data, and they're providing a lot of the uh, the GPS and the um, devices on the bikes that are now tracking you know where the bikes are, um, providing a completely different experience for the viewer. I mean, I'm, I'm into all the watts and um, the cadence and the speeds the heart and things like that. So you can the, the tech now that is available to the viewer makes the mundane stages uh, far more palatable to, to view and so is that that is obviously part of uh, making the product more attractive to, yeah. to to you and the masses who who love the sport yeah absolutely but uh, you hear you read about some of the teams though not wanting to share some of the data sure because you know, for some reason they might feel that another team may use that to work out that a cyclist is you know in trouble or in the red zone or something like that so yeah. But a lot of the teams now are sharing a lot of that data because you know you need to be social, um, and then they realise that it's not easy getting sponsors and getting viewers. Um, so do you do you think the race? So uh, the owner of my local cafe loves his AFL, wants the sport to go back to eighteen players playing in their position and having an eighteenth and nineteenth man that can be subbed on or off. And that was how it was, you know, in the days where he was growing up, he loved AFL. Doesn't so much like what he sees anymore. In cycling, is there any possibility that uh, with all these advancements in technology and uh, team cars and the the riders being able to communicate each stage and throughout the stage with their teammates, with their team car, will that ever ever, um, be reduced or will that go from the sport? Well, there have been races where they... Remove the radios from really? yeah from the from the riders and the and the team managers so w- that does happen. Um, secondly, they've also reduced the size of the teams in the tour, so they're now down to eight. They used to be nine, so they're they're tinkering and making a lot of sort of you know changes. Um, w- they changed the, the the race route a fair bit. There's going to be a stage later this year. I think it's it's about sixty or eighty k's total. Okay, so it's just basically from the gun, bang, climb. So there's there's lots of tinkering with the sport. Why do you think the sport's doing... So you mentioned the race where there's um, less of the radios or, or no radio. Why do you think... What's their purpose, do you think, behind that? Is that to try and yeah, have create, some races... Create, create, create more are, action. Create more action. So quite often... And look, I've never ridden a Grand Tour, obviously, right? Um, but the, the Peloton... Very ca- you'd be very capable, the, I'm sure. The, the Peloton, they know, they get, they get told by their team directors, you need to ride at this speed to, you know, wind, to pull back the breakaway and do it within 200 metres of the line. 
I mean, you see... It's very scripted. It's very scripted. And they know... And quite often, you'll see them, the writers now, they'll just be looking down at their data, looking at their data. So Tom Dumoulin's a big guy for his data. So he'll just be writing to his watts. He knows right. that he needs to put out this many watts. He can do this over this period of time. And as long as he's, he's within that range, he'll be fine. So there are a lot of writers, and if you follow them on social media, and if you follow like Training Peaks and other sites like that, or Strava, you can actually see what you know what sort of data they're putting out, uh, and a lot of them actually do ride, you know, to their devices. To their numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, and so on top of so they're talking about crashes as well in the peloton. Quite often saying that uh, why they're more crashes. Well, possibly they're going faster, but also the attention, right? It's like people there's distractions because they're looking yeah. down at their devices all the time. And I see that when I race. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So footy. Let's talk about. It's been some time. Anything interesting over the last couple of weeks that you've seen? Oh, I've had some. Um, I mean, we've had quite a few injuries in our group, so mm. it's, it's given a number of other umpires opportunities to do uh, a number of games. Um, had a couple of four umpire games, so we've had. Uh, yeah, I had that, one that was trialed. Uh, how'd you find that? Uh, I I was up in Brisbane, so it was really nice. It was warm. Uh, Physically, I didn't find it a challenge at all, um, but I still found that I was involved in the game a fair bit. Although this year we were, as the furthest umpire, we were told to wait or, or to position ourselves at the um, either at the last pair of players or not go beyond uh, the centre circle. So there was a bit of downtime as well. Yeah, I'm the same. Physically, it seemed much easier, even though the data suggested that we were still covering mm. similar... Uh, amounts of distance 12 13 14 kilometers obviously the intensity and the amount of um, intense running was less yeah. given there was an extra person out there the greatest challenge for, for me and, and plenty of the other guys was around the concentration factor and mm. I think it's probably a good thing but also a, a challenging one for us at the moment when there's three out there or even for any of the local umpires if there's two or three of you, you're constantly in the game. You're not, you're not out of the game. So, you, you know, you're not taking a, a mental break for two or three minutes. So that's a good thing in terms of you can stay. You know, the, you're always thinking about something or doing something. The flip side of that is, as the game wears on, mentally we all get tired, yeah. and then that's when we can also make mistakes as well. But with the four umpires, you're in and out of the play. Uh, or there's greater periods of sort of not being involved. So that in itself presents a challenge for you around, yeah. well, how do you stay sort of mentally switched on? I heard some stats around uh, the free kick counts. So through the four umpire period. And how did that compare to the three? I think we went up by an average of either, th- either six to eight. Yet our error rate wasn't as high. So it's either where we're being a little bit more technical with our free kicks or maybe when we're assessing against the rounds where we weren't umpiring with four umpires, so it was under a three-umpire system, we weren't assessing as many missed free kicks. So it's an interesting way to to look at the, the, the data or the stats. Yeah. We're paying more, but we've got less errors. But if we're paying more and we've got less errors, well, what happens when we're under three umpires? Yeah. Oh, look, it'll be interesting. I think the AFL will decide by October whether the four umpire comes in or whether they retain the three, but um, I guess we'll, we'll know soon enough, which sort mm. of leads us into all the discussion, the conversation that, you know, we here 
and that, that is talked about publicly around possible rule changes. Yep. How does the sport cope with congestion? What's the broader purpose for looking at these rules? Um, do you have, wanna... you, have you been involved in any of the conversations or discussions or trial games or training sessions? No, none of the training sessions. Um, possibly next week there's one, but haven't been involved with with any of those. Um, so, yeah, time will tell us to... Yeah, what what they what they're looking at, uh, we know as the public do. There's a number of teams that have trialed bits and pieces of them. So using the kick out square after a behind, they've increasing or they're looking at the option of increasing that to 18 meters. Um, the last touch out of bounds is is another one that they p- potentially will be looking at. There's been so much noise about zones or starting positions or call it what you like mm. um, at at certain or at stoppages again to try and uh, ease congestion and spread players out all over the field so what are your what are well, your thoughts observations well I remember and I think I've said this to you a while ago when the, the conversation started about zoning and I said well there's a fair bit of probably recency bias you come into this and all we'll probably need is two or three weeks of really good games and then suddenly we'll realise that there's probably not a lot wrong with the game. Um, and so I had, over the, over the last few weeks, I've had some cracking games. I had um, Geelong and Bulldogs, and that went down to, it was over 100 points kicked by, or close to 100 points kicked by each team. Um, kick after the siren, uh, Collingwood-Essendon, that was close, high scoring. And then last week, North Melbourne-Sydney, they both kicked over 100 points, I think. And we had, the thing I noticed was we had, two full forwards at either end of the ground. Now, so whether or not that is a case to say, well, actually, that's why we should actually enforce these changes or you just let the game evolve. Naturally evolve. See, Naturally I, evolve. Yeah, it's a really good point. I had Richmond-Sydney, uh, which was a cracking game of footy too, really intense game. But again, something I haven't really seen until this game was having, you know, Dustin Martin rest forward, mm. but literally in the goal square. And so... And I think Sydney at times are also doing that too. So, again, you had two or three players deep in the goal square, which you don't generally see. You sort of see the whole teams flow up and down the yeah. field to be sort of within one kick of, of the ball. So um, it'll be really interesting to see what they bring in, what they don't bring in. Um, what's your view on, again, you talked about the, the tour where the, the riders have always... Um, are able to communicate with their cars. In football, we've got the runners that can come on and off the field, yep. delivering messages for the entire game whenever they want. Do you think reducing the runners and, and allowing players just to play would, would help or hinder the game? I don't know. I haven't really thought about it much. I heard post our game uh, last week, Sydney and North Melbourne, that the runner had been mixed up in play. Now, I hadn't noticed the runner. Sometimes I do notice the runner and tell the runner to get off the ground. But I heard, I've heard some coaches uh, talk about you know, the use of runners. And in that game, what happened was Alir Alir went from back to forward. And Alir Alir ended up, ends up kicking the winning goal. So who actually makes that call? Does it put more ownership on the captain? Does it put more ownership on the players? Does it put more ownership on communication across the teams? Yeah, and I think... Does it create more intuition in games, which I think you often think about 
the robotics of football these days and, and yeah. the noise that you hear and players moving here and moving there and you look at down the ground vision and it's almost like a, a game of checkers. Yep. How much intuition is involved in football anymore? Well, and I think too, uh, and I think the AFL, uh, I've heard David Rath and, and Steve Hocking talk about this to your point around trying to increase the um, or, or allow players to play on instinct more mm. and to uh, be spontaneous in in uh, being able to play the game, not being as caught up in, you know, structures and positions and defensive posts and where they need to stand mm. when and all that sort of stuff. So I think as sport evolves, um, more coaches become involved, they become more sophisticated in their uh, strategies to ultimately yeah. win games of football. Um, it's going to become more complex, but I think... The thing around maintaining players' ability just to be able to play with flair and play on instinct, I think, is what makes some games and some players really attractive well, to watch. Flip it to flip it to an umpiring or official's point of view, right? So, look how complex it is for us these days in terms of the conversation that we had last night in coaching around protected area. I mean, how complicated is that? The conversation we had earlier about dropping the knees. Did he drop the knees? Is it a forceful tackle? You know, different perspectives, different views. We've got, you know, holding the ball. I mean, there's so many elements around holding the ball now. Our game has never been more complicated to umpire. And so my response to that has been just make it as simple as possible and from my point you, of view. And how do you how do you do that or what's, what's sort of your advice for for me and others, you know, at all levels in, in certainly AFL at least to try and, have that approach, you know. Yeah. Well, strip it back to, you know, what are the fundamentals around our game and around umpiring, right? Protect the ball player. So what does that look like, again, for, for the young umps out there who are maybe starting? And, you know, we started, we had no idea running around in our first few games, you know, what we are to do. You know, every, there's so much going through your head. So, it's, so fundamentally, if your mindset is firstly around, I want to get the really simple things right, so if, I see a, if you see a player that gets hit high or someone gets pushed in the back or gets jumped on, right, protect that ball player first and foremost. Try not to sweat all these other things. I mean, they will crop up from time to time and you, you do want to get them right and the onus is on you to get them right. So that's around just knowing the rules. Um, but I think the things that have hold any umpire in really good stead are the basics, the elementary things like, okay, are you fit enough to be in a good position? Are you um, fit enough and um, disciplined enough to keep good distance? Do you move around packs? Do you cut corners? So there's some basic things I think you can do well and do well early. So for example, in our teams, we'll talk about the first opportunity you've got to actually have an influence I don't mean by get involved in the game, but influence something that sets a pattern or tone for how you're going to work as a team, as a collective team for the rest of the day. So whether that's you need to nail the first set kick that you have or the first free kick, just focus on doing that one thing really well and then set the pattern or the tone for how you want to then work together you know, through the rest of the game. One, it sets a really good standard benchmark for me holds me accountable, but two, I think it sets a really good standard for the team. And so in amongst all this complexity that we're talking about is the need for a really good team performance. 
Yeah. Uh, because if, you, if you're not working together, so if you're not working to the other side of the pack where I'm exposed, then we're exposed. And ultimately, Matt, if I do well and you don't do well or vice versa, well, I don't think people really acknowledge, oh, what a great performance by Matt. The other guy, yeah. he was ordinary. They just go, umpiring was crap. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to, you know, the rule changes or what may or may not happen, I think ultimately the sport um, are ensuring as best as possible that the product remains um, as attractive as possible for, for all of us to continue to stay interested in the sport. You know, and a recent change that I think has been wonderful for the sport, and again, it copped a fair bit of criticism when they were tinkering with it was around the ruck rule and the third man up so you know the last season or two we've seen some genuine um wonderful contests between two ruckmen going Mm. at it applying their craft whereas in the past the third man up had become you know much more prevalent in the games and so the third man up was simply jumping over the top of these these ruckmen um being hit and knocked from all angles and they weren't able to really apply their craft. So I've seen that as a, as a wonderful change to the sport. Mm. And we've had to speed up the ball-ups as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's, I mean, speaking of Ruckman and how valuable they are to the game, uh, in my 280-odd games, this has never happened. So starting the game, Brisbane and North Melbourne a few weeks ago, uh, nothing to see here, bang, off we go. Quarter time, the emergency comes out and goes... Do you know the Ruckman set up on the wrong side? And I said, no. So they set up on the wrong side, but every other team member set up, obviously, to their end that they were meant to be going? Correct. So, yeah. so, so you go back to this whole thing around structures and organisation and things like that. No one, except for our emergency umpire, identified, not even me, I'm worried about getting the damn bounce, bounce straight, right? Um, Never been seen before. Uh, well, and then so it was funny. So uh, as... Uh, Toddy and Steph Martin came out for the next quarter. I said, "Hey, any chance you blokes want to set up on the right side?" <laughs> Steph, Steph, it was gold. You know, it was Goldie. No, they kept blaming each other. It, was it raises funny. the point too, doesn't it? Around who's you know, and the midfield teams four and four starting the game going there. Is it just the midfielders? You know, look at you know, this is my ruckman. This is okay. He's at that end because we know they have. Quite often they'll just accept what we say too because either they yeah. don't know the rule or we think that everything's okay and right to go, so away we go, right? How often do you... I mean, I must say there's been times where the game started and I haven't really known which way the teams are going because I haven't paid any attention, so I've got to find the forward or look at the ruck. Yeah. Um, but I try and watch the toss now um, and see which, <laughs> who's kicking which way. Uh, look, And it is, like, as, as simple as it sounds in terms of getting it, ingraining it in you from the get-go, the start of a game, knowing which way that it sounds really silly. Oh, but Nothing no, worse than pointing the wrong way. Knowing which way the teams are going. So you've, you've also, not only in terms of pointing the wrong, right way, but anticipating play. So if you know a free kick that you've paid or your uh, fellow umpire has made, you can adjust and move mm. accordingly and anticipate the play. Um, I know a few times I've, you know, you sort of lose... Um, you lose which way teams are going and you might actually charge up towards one way when in fact you should be going the opposite. Yep. So, you know, that, that's a, it's a simple thing but something that I think can help all of us. Um, a little bit of concentration. Um, but it happens well. all the time. It's just like when you blow the mark um, when the, and the player drops the ball yeah. and you just hope that play continues. Um, yeah. 
So Matt, we're well and truly into the season. We're heading towards the end, no doubt. So you've obviously got aspirations, as you do every year, to go deep into finals. What do you think umpires should be thinking about as they you know, progress towards uh, the finals period? Uh, I think it's, and you and I, we've experienced being involved for quite a while now. It doesn't matter whether you're an elite uh, athlete, official, I think it's really important to focus your attention on the things that you can do, um, be that your training, be that your preparation for games, be that your effort out on the ground, um, your willingness to uh, help teammates or help your fellow umpires. Um, I've seen over the years officials, players at all levels probably become too distracted Mm. by um, other things and other things that really just don't help them. So I'd be encouraging all the the umpires out there to uh, certainly, you know, encourage your peers and and, and be supportive and things. But really, you know, it should be 90%, if not all your focus and attention on the stuff that will give you a really good chance to officiate well. Mm. And I can speak from experience. Sometimes you put all that effort in and your focus is in the right place and you perform poorly. And, you know, that just happens sometimes. So, um, but I think more often than not, if you can have that approach, uh, it'll hold you in good stead to at least being able to put out your best possible performance. And given though the majority of officials actually won't get to umpire finals, so what's what do you think is a, a good approach towards the end of the season, knowing that or they may already know they're not going to umpire finals or, or there's no expectation for them to umpire finals? What what would you uh, say to them? Yeah, again, we've been through this, from, yeah. you know, from our first years of AFL to, you know, and we've both had some success. But I think every game counts, you mm-hmm. know, and we're, we're, we're one of two, two of 34 umpires, you know, um, who are wanting to um, demonstrate uh, mm. excellence every single week and so even if you've had a, a, f- a rough first half of the year or a couple of games or four games every game is an opportunity for you to um, demonstrate and, and perform really well or or not so well so I would say you know and I think we've both been encouraging the younger umps for many years um, every game counts and you know, if you can put together two or three or four or five games at the the last part of the year, that is a fantastic uh, foundation it's going into the start yeah. of next year. Yeah. And it instills some confidence in, uh, in our coaches that, you know, this umpire, you know, has got it and will go continuity, on. Continuity, they can, yeah, they can put some things together. That's yeah. a good point. I mean, I try and just find that one thing as well. So... You know, what's that one thing that I want to... Because it's as much about me getting something out of the game as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so I try and find that one thing, whether it's uh, you know, working on a particular skill or um, you know, having a certain mindset around something, or even if it's around learning something new about an umpire that I'm actually officiating with, whether it's a boundary or goal umpire. And just you know, finding yeah. something that I can, I can take away from a game. What was your mindset just quickly on... I mean, I watched the last quarter of the, um, the, the Sydney North Melbourne game. Like, it was electrifying footy, probably the game of the year in terms of excitement. Like, what were you, I mean, did you have a chance out there to kind of go, this is pretty cool? You know, like you don't get a lot of games like that, that mm. are goal after goal. You know, Sydney's winning, North's up, Sydney take back the lead, Kangaroos are in front. 
you know, what, what were you feeling out on the ground that last sort of quarter? Well, it's funny. I, I think I've had, so I had the showdown earlier in the year, game of the year, Bulldogs Geelong, game of the year. And now this one, game of the year. So it will be surpassed by the next close game, no doubt. But you're right. Look, it was probably looking back, seeing the full forwards at either end of the ground early in the game. But I knew this game was going to be really hot uh, when David Harris you know, starts the game and he has to run up and down, up and down a few times. There's no score, right? We still got to 100 points. But the, the, the teams were really moving the football. And there weren't a lot, of a, tackle, a lot of tackles in the game, but there was a lot of pressure acts, a lot of marking contests. Uh, so for us, we actually spoke about it three-quarter time, just making sure that we were deep in the forward line because we, we, we had the forwards, right, that were either end of the ground, and they were probably going to dictate the outcome of the game. And as it was, you know, we had Alira Lear go forward, kick a goal. Um, Buddy kicked a few in the last quarter as well. So for us, it was more around, let's just make sure that we maintain that standard that we've kept around like quick play on calls because I think we contributed to a pretty good game in terms of calling play on when a player stepped off his line and not paying or not penalising a 50 metre penalty, you know, as yeah. an unwarranted... Um, not disrupting the flow. Not disrupting the flow, I guess. Yeah, that's yeah. a good, good way to put it. So it was more around just be, just be back, be deep, get a good look into the marking contests, right, and let the game unfold. We didn't pay a hell of a lot of free kicks, although when we looked back, there was an odd, uh, a lopsided free kick count. And obviously, we don't care about that. But yeah. um, So it was more around that, just allowing the game to, to flow and, and be deep. Okay. Uh, just one other thing that some umpires who are listening may be interested in. Nathan Ellsworthy used to um, umpire at a pretty high level. Uh, a PhD student of his is undertaking a study. I used to mentor him. Uh, you used to mentor him? Yeah, he's part of one of the mates' programs. Oh, there you yeah. go. Wonderful fella. But he's um, they're doing away. a study on on sleep and decision-making for Australian sports officials. There's a free survey. It'll take 10 to 15 minutes to complete. We'll put it up on our Facebook page. You are welcome to um, undertake uh, that survey. And then all the work that's being done out of that, uh, that project, uh, there might be some really useful findings mm. for for both us and officials at all levels uh, in terms of the impact on on sleep or lack of sleep, on decision-making and, you know, your ability to perform in games. So that's something that I'd encourage you all to have a look at. Definitely. Um, I know Nathan's done a fair bit of work around uh, decision-making and a lot of research into fatigue, decision-making, look at the... Times of quarters. Times of quarters. When decisions are made or mistakes are yeah. made and the impact. if we can get Nathan on and talk to Nathan one day about um, his, some of his findings because I found it fascinating reading some of the, um, some of the insights that, um, that he's taken from his research. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And again, once all this work's done, um, we, we can you know, maybe access the findings and, and put it on our page. And again, it's, it hopefully will be there. That All right, Nathan, you know, you're coming use... on the show. <laughs> We're going to talk to you about decision-making, fatigue, all sorts of things. So get prepared, mate. So we'll see Nathan at some stage in the near future, I hope. One other thing, just quickly. So last night we had our uh, the younger umpires, the developing uh, umpires, first to third year umpires, take our coaching session. They did. Um, I think it just it was a great example to send out to all the young, particularly the younger umpires out there, even though you might be new or, or young in terms of your umpiring experience, you can still contribute really um, 
positively to yeah. to the group and and in terms of helping others. And I mean, we saw that last night. The other takeout I took out of that is um, these younger umps really value. Uh, the feedback and yeah, the conversations that, yeah. that that us experienced people have with them, and and they really encourage that. So, I think that that is another good example of as a young umpire, use the experience people around you to learn, to develop, to help you along the way, and that can really uh, advance your umpiring. But as what well. I heard there as well from Al and um, Gia was it's not always just about well what's right or wrong. There were really really little subtle things that really helped them with their umpiring. You know, such as a small adjustment here, or I think the example that you gave it was, you, I mean, you really had to listen in. So he awarded that correct 50, that fifty meter penalty, and you just reminded him, hey, just wait for the player in the event that something happens. Now nothing did happen, but for him, he's like, okay, I need to wait for the player. So I don't think he'll ever be running off on a player, um, you know, when he's implementing a fifty, and then suddenly something happens behind the field of play, and he doesn't yeah. see it, or he's too far away from it. So. You're right. It, sometimes it's just a, it's not always about a decision, right or wrong. It's about just little things, um, because uh, you know you can look at a decision as well and work out. Well, we're ultimately take. there to manage the game, and so mm. there's lots of we call them little things, but they're probably more valuable than than you know a free kick here yeah. or there. We need to get decisions right, and we get most of them right. But yeah, I think there's so many other aspects to. What are ma- some little things that you do in your game that? you know, aren't in the handbook or 101 umpiring? Well, the one thing, and again, I've seen it done poorly at our level and I've seen it done really well, and that is after a goal is scored as as the umpire, you make sure you stay in and around where those players are. You know, the attacking team, they're going to be celebrating. The defenders might be a bit down. The attackers might get in their face a bit. So if you are obsessed in just jogging back to near the centre... You are not doing your job. So your job then and there is to stay around. And it might simply be that you say nothing and you just observe mm. eight or ten players. So that's that's one thing for me that I think is... And, and is it fair to say that that came from David Levins when we were back in the VFL days and he was mentoring us? Because that was something that he instilled in me. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing happened, but where were you focused? Yeah, and look, it takes one one time when, mm. when it does happen. And when if you're yeah. not looking, you know, again, I, I'd, I'd be... I'd be far more critical of an umpire if they weren't looking mm. versus if they were and they just chose, not you know, maybe something. not to do something. Yeah. So uh, that, that'd that be one one thing. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, where are you off to this week? Adelaide. Port Adelaide and GWS on Sunday. So it should be a pretty tough contest, I reckon. Mm-hmm. You? I'm off to Optus Stadium for the first time. Very hard surface over there, but wonderful well, stadium. Well, Matt Nichols said, go out and buy yourself a white pair of runners. You can certainly wear runners. I haven't worn runners on a football field for a very long time, mind you. Nor have I. No. Um, since looked at the forecast, and it's probably bucketing down now. It's going to bucket down all weekend. So I might bring a rubber ducky over some... Um, take the runners. Give the runners take a the go. Runners, give the runners a go. No, I'd, uh, I'd encourage anyone... in who ever gets there it's a wonderful stadium um great atmosphere i mean you know the g and how does all it compare to uh, adelaide uh adelaide's a bit different in terms of it's got the standing area and it's yeah. it's you know um that in itself is uh, the, you know the noise factors it's you know when it's full it's pretty loud over mm. there but it's just an absolute um the facility is world class in terms of all its all its uh modern facilities there's actually a massive area for spectators to be 
viewing the game, uh, viewing the game from ground level, mm. um, which you know no other stadium in Australia, certainly for our sport, does that. So and is the ground really that hard? Yeah, it's it's reasonably hard. Um, sort and of I, how Eddie had started out. Had, there was all yeah, that talk about how that yeah, was really hard. Much. I mean, you're putting it on top of concrete, so I mean, what do you expect? Yeah, and I think they, uh, you know, we, we got asked for feedback um, early on. I think it's, it was in part due to not only it's a new facility and stadium, but um, for cricket and cricket was the first sport sort of to be involved. Uh, it needed to be, you know, pretty pretty hard for that. Yeah, so yeah. over time, it'll soften and. Um, yeah, good luck over there. Thanks, mate. All right, that's all we have time for today. Uh, as usual, uh, head to our Facebook page, The Officials Podcast. While you're there, like and rate our uh, podcast. Chelsea will be back, I'm Chelsea sure. Chelsea will be back. Oh. And also, we'll put, um, we'll put up that decision-making and sleep survey onto our, uh, our Facebook page, so be sure to fill in that survey. That's all we have time for today. As usual, visit our Facebook page, The Officials Podcast. And don't forget to like or share this podcast on whatever it is the platform you're downloading or streaming from. 